Well, first of all, any sort of self-improvement by its very nature is going to be difficult. Like no self-improvement feels great. If it feels great, you're probably not actually changing very much. Uh, you know, any any real change is by definition painful, stressful, difficult. And so if you're going to write very honestly about those subjects, one thing I discovered while I was blogging is you kind of have to like mix a little bit of honey into the medicine. And so that's that's where like the humor started, kind of the, the irreverent attitude, some of the stories. Because I, I just noticed that if you're dropping F-bombs and you're telling some crazy story about this time you got drunk in college, then having that difficult conversation about life purpose or whatever it may be, after that, it goes down much better for people. Like if people are more open to it. You know, the same way we need to challenge ourselves physically, I think we need to challenge ourselves intellectually. I think we need to challenge ourselves emotionally. Um, and I guess you could argue even challenge ourselves spiritually. That's Mark Manson, this week on The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. This is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. Up top, quick note. I implore anyone listening who is struggling with their diet, please check out our Plant Power Meal Planner. Affordably priced, it's just $1.90 a week. It provides access to thousands of nutritious and delicious plant-based recipes that we're constantly updating. You get grocery lists, grocery delivery, and access to a team of experienced dietary coaches seven days a week. To learn more and to sign up, visit meals.richroll.com. Okay, how to preface this. Let's just say that one day I woke up and suddenly everywhere I looked, prominently positioned in every airport bookstore, ubiquitous in every bookseller window display was this brightly colored orange book with the unmistakable title, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And I will freely admit that I dismissed this book as sort of the ultimate clickbait. And I thought, I'm not biting. In fact, I downright refused to read it, but this book, it just wouldn't go away. Not only did it top the New York Times bestseller list, it stayed there like forever. In fact, I just checked, it's still there. Six million plus copies later, sitting at number three, just below Ryan Holiday's number one rank, Stillness is the Key. Congrats, Ryan, by the way. Uh, a full 147 weeks since its publication, this book is still on the New York Times bestseller list, and that is a unicorn. And I just thought at the time, who is this Mark Manson guy? And realizing that perhaps my resistance was a little misplaced maybe, uh, that perhaps there was more going on here, I finally relented. And I have to say, I was pleasantly and quite surprised. Sure, it's contrarian. It tackles the tired tropes of personal development and it's chock-a-block with F-bombs, but it's also refreshing and kind of beautiful in its confrontational tone. It grapples with real issues, with real depth and grit, and this naked, raw, and unique philosophical voice and sensibility. So here we are. 
For the few unfamiliar with this author before he became a publishing juggernaut, his influence has launched countless profanely titled copycat wannabe books. Uh, Mark began his career as a blogger, where he still, to this day, shares personal development advice, which in his word, quote unquote, doesn't suck, with 2 million monthly readers. And you can find that at markmanson.net. His follow-up book to The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is a book also aptly titled Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. And this is another chart topper which dissects our relationship with money, entertainment, and the internet and how too much of a good thing can psychologically eat us alive. And it's in my mind equally compelling, even better I think. It's a more mature work and this book comprises a decent portion of today's conversation. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. 
Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, Mark, so this is about a lot of things, but not the least of which is the existential crisis, the altitude sickness that is visited upon a person who eclipsed every ambition, achieved every goal, exceeded his wildest dreams by age 32. When that happens, what then? So that's one of the things we explore today. Specifically, we cover, of course, Mark's backstory as a blogger in his beginning years, the methods to his various forms of madness, uh, the enormous unexpected success of his first book and the unexpected pressures that accompanied that. In other words, what happens when you have too much comfort, too much satisfaction, uh, followed by a very interesting breakdown of social constructs and uh, a really cool discourse on human dignity. I dig this one. I hope you do too. So without further ado, this is me and Mark Manson. So uh, a little before we even get into it, I gotta ask you a little uh, a little birdie on the street told me that <laughs> you're uh, you're working with Will Smith on a, yeah. on, a, on his book, right? It, it literally is a birdie on the street because yeah. his house is like. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because he literally lives around the corner from here. Although yeah. you know what, I've never I've never met him. Mm-hmm. I've actually and I've never really seen him. I've seen him driving his car, but I've actually never he's never there. interacted with him. He's never there. It's crazy. He's got this like incredible 400 acre property yeah. or something. And it's like Neverland Ranch down there. It's oh, yeah. an entire compound with multiple dwellings and like a lake and a yeah. full court basketball court. Yeah, they, they've got about a dozen people living there. Right. And, uh, you know, family and childhood friends and stuff. And he's never there. He's, <laughs> he's always on the road. He does some Instagram stories from there every every once in a while. Yeah. Though, so I know he's there from time to time. <laughs> so you're, you're working on a book with him. Yeah. Yeah. So is it like a memoir or like a self-help? What is the, what's the angle? A little bit of both. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I, I would say it's a self-help book told through the lens of his life. Uh-huh. Um, he just turned 50. Um, he's, he's gone through some midlife crisis type stuff the last five years or so his father passed away and um kids have grown up so he's kind of in a stage of his life where he wants to start giving back Mm -hmm. start opening opening up the kimono and being like hey this is who i am this is what my life is really about and uh this is what i've learned so it's just for me it's like it's got to be crazy it's and kind of cool. project. I mean, he's so unbelievably charismatic. <laughs> yeah, he But is. what is it like when you're just chilling with him? 
Like what, it, what is he's, it about him that makes him so uniquely him? He's exactly the same. It's funny because all, all, you know, when I, when I come home, all my friends are like, oh man, what's he like? And I'm like, dude, he's, he's the Fresh Prince. Full on. He is the Fresh Prince. Uh-huh. Like that is just, that's not acting. Like yeah. that is who he is. You know, it's just fun, jubilant, witty. He, my sense is that he's one of those guys that, that has that thing. You know, Bill Clinton has it. There are certain very charismatic people that have it that know how to make everybody feel special, right? Absolutely. What is that quality? I don't know. You know, it was interesting when I met him. So it's funny because celebrity books in in the publishing world, this surprises people, but in the publishing world, celebrity books actually have a very bad reputation Mm -hmm. uh, because every celebrity wants one, but none of them actually want to put in the 18 months of work to write it. They just want some ghostwriter to roll in and do it for them. They just want to put it on their shelf. And... um, and they cost a lot of money. So they, the, the books tend to be bad um, and the publishers pay, they usually lose a bunch of money on it. Um, so when I went into it, you know, everybody kind of told me, they're like, hey, you know, don't just do this because he's who he is. Um, and I had a lot of stuff going on in, in my career too. So I was like, all right, I, you know, I, there needs to be a good book here. I can't, I'm not just gonna sign on because uh-huh. I like Men in Black or whatever. Um, so I met him and one of the first questions I asked myself is, is, you know, what, what is truly unique about him? Like what is different about him? Uh, like what, what is something that he could share with the world that most people can't? Um, and I ended up telling him this the the first time I, I met with him is I said, like, you know, you're clearly smart, you're very successful, you're famous, obviously, but you know, those things are all pretty common. What I told him is I said, spending th- three days with you, uh, your emotional intelligence is off the charts, mm-hmm. like absolutely off the charts, um, both in terms of that charisma that you were just talking about, um, his ability to, to just intuitively read and recognize how people are feeling and then, you know, yeah. get them feeling good in a very quick and efficient way. Um, but also just things he's gone through in his life, like just a lot of hardship and trauma and stuff that he bounced back harder and faster than pretty much anybody I've ever met from stuff that happened to him. And I told him, I said, that's one in a million, you know? And I think that's what what the book should be. Yeah. It's interesting to watch over the last year, how he has embraced social media yeah. and become like this crazy, you know, <laughs> wizard of, you know, <laughs> of self-improvement and motivation. Yeah. You know, like y- you see certain big time personalities dabble in it, but he just went, he went full all on. He went know? all in. He went full on. I'm, I, I know his uh, trainer a little bit and his trainer was telling me that the the idea really is to shift your thinking. Like instead of, I'm a movie star who does social media to just say like, I'm a social media person Mm -hmm. who occasionally does movies. And he really kind of embodied that ethos and then just exploded, it's crazy. The funny thing about him too is is he's the only, you know, everybody rags on social media these days, everybody kind of gripes about it. Um, He's the only person who is like, like, 
what's everybody talking about? Social media is great. And, I, <laughs> and at one point I told him, I'm like, yeah, well, because everybody watches you. Like, yeah. <laughs> you you have no FOMO because you're doing uh -huh. the coolest shit on social media. So And he's just putting out a positive, he uplifting is. message. He's, he's having a blast. And I think, you know, he spent so much of his career hiding himself. Because that's what you did when you were a celebrity in the 90s. Like, mm -hmm. you didn't want them. No, you want a little mystery. And the paparazzi's following yeah. you around and, and tabloids are publishing stuff about you all the time. And so he spent so much of his adult life hiding himself from the world. And it's, I think he feels like now he's like, oh, I get to finally show people like what I'm about. Yeah, that's cool. Have you interacted with Jaden at all? Yeah. He's yeah. the best. Yeah, Jaden. He's, he is. He's the sweetest One of guy. the most impressive young people that I've ever met. Like I've known him for a very long time. He's friends with my sons and he used to come over here and jam. Oh, yeah. So I've, I've known him for years. And you know, you see him at the grocery store, right? Like he's out yeah. and about. And every time that I interact with that kid, he is 100% present. Oh yeah. He looks you right in the eye. He's incredibly polite and gracious and interested. Like, And, and he's out in the world like doing incredible things that yeah. no one else is doing. Yeah, and he's he's genuinely kind. I mean, that that was another thing, and I hate to say it, kind of surprised me. Like you go in, you're like, all right, celebrity kids, like you expect right. them to be And they, they you know, up, and like they got a lot of wacky press, like oh, him and his course. sister for being a little nutty, but yeah. like my experience with them is nothing short of like, you know, I, I always leave feeling good uh, yeah, <laughs> in the I, interaction. I'm, all three of his kids, I'm mm. hugely impressed by them. Um, very smart, very kind, very good young people. Um, and, and it's, and yeah, they've got their quirks and, you know, mistakes and stuff that they've done in the past. But like, I look at it, I'm like, man, if I grew up like that, yeah, I wouldn't turn out that well. No, I mean, 99 <laughs> times out of 100, it's some dilettante who oh, isn't motivated to do anything, which is kind of, you know, the part of the thesis of your latest book, essentially, yeah. Yeah. right? So let's set the stage a little bit. I mean, sure. you, write, you write this first book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and it just becomes this, you know, like unbelievable phenomenon where you sold yeah. like eight, mil, 8 million copies yeah, at this I point, something like that. It's past like I million. can't even comprehend that. <laughs> I can't even. You know, so like, let's let's walk through, I wanna, I wanna like inch up to the kind of existential crisis that you faced in, sure. in the aftermath of this. But, sure. you know, prior to this, you're like this blogger, you're kind of a four hour work week, you know, experiment in motion. Mm -hmm. you're, you're putting out stuff into the world and you write some blog posts that explode and it leads to this book. Yeah. Um, but my sense or my understanding is that you're somebody who just prided yourself on putting out good writing and kind of incrementally, gradually, organically growing your audience. Yes. And then you stumble into you know, this phenomenon that nobody could have ever predicted. So yeah. elaborate. <laughs> you know, it, it I always feel weird telling this story because it, you know, the last thing anybody wants to hear is, uh, you know, a boohoo, yeah, I know, poor yeah, best-selling author, yeah, <laughs> but it, it 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 really messed with me because I, I guess since I started writing seriously in my mid twenties, my dream was I want to have a, you know, I want to have a book deal, I want to have a bestseller, I wanna be on the times list, I wanna to like tour mm -hmm. the country. Um, you know, it was kind of this checklist of life 
goals in my head. And in my mind, it was like, okay, I'm going to, like, this is what I'm going to work towards over my adult. Like, this is my life's work. Um, this is what I'm going to be working on until I'm like 60. Mm -hmm. uh, and subtle art just knocked all those out in like two months. Right. And so it's, which is amazing. But on the other hand. So it was, what, you, it was an instantaneous thing when it happened. I don't, I don't remember it, at the time. It how took it a down. few months to take off. Uh -huh. um, it had a decent launch. It, it debuted on the times list, um, but then it fell off. And then about three months later, it came back. What, why, what do you attribute that to? Like, did something specific happen? I think, I think it took that long for word of mouth to yeah, kick in. Yeah, the groundswell took, yeah. took a minute. Uh, and then, and then it was right around that time too. The the holidays were kicking in, so um, and it, it's it it does great on the holidays. People, mm -hmm. it's a good gift book. Um, so it just it started this ascent, and the whole time I'm like watching it, I'm like, well, this is crazy. This is crazy. But every every month, I'm like, okay, well, this is going to end soon. You know, uh -huh. th this is my little 15 minutes. Um, enjoy it. And uh, now we're about three years in, and it's it's still number one this week. Uh, <laughs> That's so crazy. <laughs> it's been number one in like fourteen different countries. Uh huh. Um, I think I've had I have number number one and number two right now in like four different countries. Right. Right. Now. Uh, I mean, it's just silly. At it this it point. is. It's reached a point where I'm like, I, I tell people, I'm like, you know, I'm I'll take credit for the first million. You know, I worked my ass off for 10 years. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, I came up with a great title, wrote a great book. Like, I'll take credit for the first million. You know, the other seven or eight, like, uh, I don't know what's right. going on. Well, it's 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 a book that, I mean, first of all, the cover's bright orange, you can't miss it. <laughs> and, you know, the title is gonna grab anybody. It has yeah. a kind of pop culture, you know, aesthetic about it. Um, and and I will freely admit that when, you know, it came online and I first saw it, I was like, who's this fucking guy with this fucking <laughs> book? You know, this is a bullshit book, <laughs> you know, right? And, uh, and the truth is, is that you're this ardent, well-read student of literature and history and philosophy. And when you start to read the book, it tells a very different story from yeah. you know the, the my knee jerk sense when you look at the cover. Sure, and it's funny because I'm I would imagine that your people are always saying to you like oh you know it, it's easy to just think oh this is a book about like you know how to be an asshole basically yeah. Yeah. right but it's really a book about trying to help people drill down on what their values are so sure. that they can be discerning about what they care about and not yeah. care about. I think I think one thing that. I learned over the years of blogging is that, well, first of all, any sort of self-improvement by its very nature is going, going to be difficult. Like no self-improvement feels great. You know, uh -huh. it's like, if it feels great, you're probably not actually changing right. very much. Like, um, like people on Instagram who are posting quotes that just make you feel good about what you're already yeah, doing. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, life-changing, <laughs> hashtag life-changing. Yeah. And you know, three days later, they're uh -huh. doing the same shit. Uh, you know, any any real change is by definition painful, stressful, difficult. Um, and so if you're gonna write very honestly about those subjects, one thing I discovered while I was blogging is you kind of have to like mix a little bit of honey into the medicine. And so that's that's where like the humor started, kind of the, the irreverent attitude, some of the stories started to come out. Yeah. Um, because I, I just noticed that 
if you're dropping F-bombs and you're telling some crazy story about this time you got drunk in college, then having that difficult conversation about life purpose or whatever it may be, after that, mm-hmm. it goes down much better for people. Like if people are more open to it. Yeah. Um, whereas if you just launch straight into like, what are you doing with your life? Like, you know, why do you hate yourself? Mm-hmm. It, it's nobody wants. Well, you have to be able to create an emotional connection, Yeah. right? And this is like philosophy for millennials on some <laughs> yeah. level. Like it's written for that audience very, you know, intentionally, but you know, if you can tell that story and whoever's reading it goes, oh, I see myself in that, now yep. I'm in, when you deliver the medicine, they're in a place to be able to like receive it. And exactly, it. exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that same shock value that causes a lot of people to write me off, uh, I've actually, I've written about it on my blog. Like I argue that there is value to that, that, that it is, if you can shock people a little bit, they lower their defenses and they're willing, they're more willing to maybe hear something, hear an idea or uh, a suggestion that they're not, they wouldn't normally be mm-hmm. open to. Um, so there's there's definitely, a, there's a method to the madness and it was very much crafted over many, many years of writing online. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where in the publishing world, I'm like this star new author and I'm like, dude, I've been doing this yeah. For 12 years. Yeah, well, that's the case. Yeah, the overnight success. Yeah, the 12-year overnight success, yeah. Right. Um, but it had to be completely disorienting when this, yeah. when this happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it sounds crazy, but I woke up and I'm like, I don't know what to do, you know? It's like, okay, yeah, I, that, that checklist in my head uh-huh. of what I was gonna be working on until I was 60, everything was checked off. So I'm like, all right. And then then you got money pouring in. I'm like, all right, I guess, I don't know. Here you are, you've done <laughs> everything that you ever aspired to do and you're as successful as you could have ever possibly imagined being. Uh, and you have the means to make choices about your life. Like you're basically sitting in this position that everybody you know, works so hard to yeah. get to, right? Yeah. And you know, let's let's you know paint the picture of the truth of what it's like to actually achieve your dreams. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I mean, there's pride for what you've created. Absolutely, there's a know. lot of pride and there's a lot of gratitude, mm. but there's also, I mean, it, it's like getting slammed into a midlife crisis at sixty miles an hour. Uh-huh. Um, because I, I I'm, th- what you just said is true. I did. I hit everything I ever aspired to do, and I was thirty two. So I'm like, crap. I still have like to do something for the next 50 years. Right. <laughs> and, and figuring out what that next thing to do with your life is is difficult. And, and then on top of that, I guess just the, the nature, I guess, of, of having a successful creative career is the incentives don't line up exact. So, you know, most people, if, you, if you're like, let's say you're a successful executive at a company, uh, you get paid for being there, like you, you your pay is proportional to how much you show up, how often you show up and how much value you add to that right. company. When you're a writer, I mean, I I was sitting around in 2017, I'm like, well, I could go back on tour and promote the book for a month, uh, or I could just sit around and play Zelda and I'm gonna sell the exact same amount of copies. <laughs> so, so I'm just gonna sit around and play video games. Uh-huh. And um and that's fun for a month or two, but it it, it eventually this kind of uh, did you make a bunch of crazy purchases? No, that's the other thing. Like yeah. I'm a really 
Spartan dude. Mm-hmm. Um, the, honest to God truth, my big purchase was I bought a Nintendo Switch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You like, could have like traveled the world. You probably had already been traveling. A I've, time, I've though, already right? yeah, you've already done that. Um, right? I, t- I took the wife to Paris. You know, we we did a bunch of like fancy restaurants and stuff, and and we did a nice birthday trip. So I mean, there were some there were some little things there, but I mean, I was already living the life I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I, I I quite honestly didn't know what to do with myself, and so it, it 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 the end result was this very strange situation. Because I, I kind of went through this lost, depressed period in my early 20s of like, I have no idea what to do. I'm broke. Uh, I like have no, I, I have no opportunities in front of me. Like I, I, that that whole loss of purpose, you know, that that a lot of people experience. Like I went through that. And here I am on the complete opposite situation. I've achieved everything I wanted. Yeah. Got a buttload of money, tons of opportunities but I feel exactly the same. Like I've got this weird mm-hmm. depression going on. Uh, but you're well read enough to know to, to, to have like predicted that, right? Like we're all told, yeah. look, you know, money's great, but it's, it's not gonna change, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna make you happy. Like all these platitudes about success and yeah. money. Yeah. But then when you experienced it, was, it, was your, your experience surprising to you or different than what you might've imagined? I think what surprised me is that it felt exactly the same as it did when I had nothing. Uh-huh. Um, I thought it was going to feel, you know, I knew it'd be weird and disorienting, but I thought it would feel different. Um, and 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 I should note that it's like I see now why people self-destruct when they experience success that quickly. It's funny to, to bring Will back into it. I talked to him about this, and he said that um, he said Quincy Jones used to call it altitude sickness. He said, if people if, if people experience success too quickly, mm-hmm. um, they they get sick and pass out yeah. and, and fall down the mountain. Right. Um, and I get it. It's crazy. How did Will avoid that? I mean, he was pretty young. Yeah, I think for Will, it happened. First of all, he was seventeen, so I, I don't think he ever. And he started rapping when he was like thirteen, so yeah. I I, he, I don't think he ever. Everything was always on this kind of trajectory. Um, but I think it happened to him, I don't know, I say gradually, but you know, I actually, I think he went through a period, he got famous and rich and then blew it all. And so he had that valley. Oh, for, he did. For a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the late eighties. Um, yeah, he owed the IRS like 1.6 million or something <laughs> insane. Like he, he made like 6 million bucks when he was uh-huh. 18. And then blew through all of it, uh, and then his next album flopped. And so he had this this like two year period before the Fresh Prince show. Uh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, that he was like in a pretty dark spot. Mm. So I think he went through that in a very like more extreme way. Right. So you're what thirty two when this happens. Yeah. You're on the couch, and at some point you have to just realize like, hey, I'm a writer, and this is what I do. Right. Like right. divorce yourself from this uh you know attachment or idea that like hey i've peaked yeah i'll never be this good again yeah and try to fall in love with what it was that got you you know started in the first place totally um yeah the the other interesting thing about success like that is that there it introduces all sorts of new pressures um you know so now now the publisher wants right you know the, the publisher wanted subtle art 
not giving a fuck for teens right. and we settle could, our nuggets. We could do this for forever, parents. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and let's just let's just you know note that now there's this just proliferation of books that have covers that look very similar to this yes. with the word fuck on them. I mean, yeah. Please help us put this to sleep. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm starting to. This is going to sound. Like, this is going to sound so arrogant, but I, I've started saying this because I'm so sick of it. Um, I started telling people, I'm like, yeah, everybody thinks if they put fuck on the cover, it's going to be a bestseller. What they're missing is that you have to put Mark Manson on the cover. Oh, dude! <laughs> wow. Okay. There might have to be some words in between the the cover and the back page that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Too. I mean, it's I I I I was pretty diplomatic about it, but at this point, there's like twelve or fifteen other books that are. It must you must laugh when you walk through a bookstore or a bookstore at an airport and you see books that look just like your. It's. <laughs> It's yeah. Uh-huh. I, I mean, you have to, right? Right. <laughs> so, how did that go down when you tell the publisher, like, I'm not going to, you know, just do like it's not going to be chicken soup for the soul, you know, with five thousand versions of the right. same book. Uh, I mean, they were fine with that, but it, it's it's interesting because like there, there's kind of an irony in the in the, and I'm sure this is true with every creative field. Like when you're the unknown guy. Um, they're actually very casual with you. They're like, hey man, if you need another few months with that draft, like take your time. You know, we're we're here to help. Uh-huh. And you're like, oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate that. Um, when you're a big bestseller, they're like, what the fuck? Where's the next book? Right. We gotta make money. We gotta keep the lights on. Like, you know, no, 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 we won't edit it. It's okay, we'll put it out. You know, and so you actually have to, it becomes much more combative because strangely the incentives of the author and the incentives of the publisher are no longer aligned. The publisher, you know, it's, they're just, they just want to cash in as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. because they've got, you know, investors and uh, calls with Wall Street and stuff. Um, Whereas an author, you're like, wait, I I need to protect my brand. I I need to like make sure I'm still doing this 10 years from now. And so um, the second time around, it was way more combative. And they were trying to push me into a lot of different ideas that I didn't really want to go into. They were pushing me on timeline. They wanted to put this thing out like six months before it came out. Um, I had to fight for, you know, Subtle Art went through, I think, four or five rounds of revision. Initially, they only wanted to do one with the new book. I had to fight for like three more. Um, I mean, I basically had to sit on it. I I basically had to be like, guys, we're not putting this out until it's good. (laughs) Well, you're the guy who allows all these other authors to write books because most books don't make money. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's the one in 20 or one in, I don't know, whatever the ratio is, but you are the guy who's keeping the lights on. So you're the bankable, you know, element here. So it doesn't surprise me that the pressure would come down. I know, it's just- You, You carry, you shoulder the responsibility for all the other authors who got, you know, fairly decent advances that they'll never earn out of. Right. And and it's I, I've told my agent, I'm like, you know, you would think that they would <laughs> they would like work with me. You know, because yeah, like, it's like let's make sure this is good if we want to, you know, well, try to catch lightning in a bottle again. Because it's like, guys, I want to put up put out a follow-up soon too. Uh-huh. Like, you know, it's good for me too. But like you know, let's get on the same page here. So it, it was um it's disheartening. It makes you realize or or you know think that it really is just about marketing and branding and not about quality of content. And it's, I think one thing that helped me a lot, you know, so initially like the first six months or so, I I, I was constantly pissed at them. 
Um, and eventually what helped me understand is that, you know, you you essentially, you have this building full of people who love books, who make their living selling books. Uh, and they do pretty much everything except actually write the book. Mm -hmm. um, and so anytime you have a group of people whose livelihood is based on like doing this one thing, they'll start to convince themselves that that one thing is actually what mm -hmm. moves. And authors do the same thing. They're like, oh, well, my brilliant work, if the publisher didn't mess it up, like, you know, I would have yeah. sold five <laughs> times more copies. You know, so we're all, yeah. like, they've got their biases. I have my biases. And so I think it's it's just important to, the communication should, just needs to be good. And sadly, um, the industry, at least the publishing industry, and from what I've heard, it's true in film and music as well. It's like the com the communication's awful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very sneaky and kind of they do things behind your back and try to like they'll say one thing to your face, but you know, meanwhile the marketing team's doing something completely different, mm -hmm. and um, it just feels icky. It just feels really bad. I mean, I haven't had you know crazy publishing success. My books have done well. So I can't, you know, I, I don't have that kind of direct experience, but I do know that there are a lot of um, uh, myths, you know, that people believe like when they write a book that the publisher is gonna do certain things. Oh, and yeah. It's not until you go through <laughs> it that you realize that. <laughs> so it's basically all on you, you yeah. know, like you really, and it's like, wait, what are you doing again? Like, yeah. you know, you're printing the book. Yeah, I got that. but. Um, you know, especially when it comes to the marketing stuff. And I, I heard you talking to somebody where you, even despite all this crazy success, you were still having to kind of, uh, you know, organize a lot of your own, yeah. you know, press. The first time around- and you never did like mainstream stuff still. No. Eight million books without like, you know, spending five days in a row on the Today Show or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And it, and it's weird, what's weird too, is that it's it's a distinctly American thing. So. Um, I've been on TV in Brazil. I've been on TV in Australia. because of the title? I think so. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing too, I mean, we were talking about Ryan Holiday before we sat down, but like I've talked to Ryan about this a lot too, is like I think the, the, the media in the US has this weird prejudice against internet people. Um, so if you built your platform online, right. they pretend you don't exist until they can't, it's impossible for them right. to pretend anymore. And then once they stop pretending, it's this very condescending, like, you know, like, oh, well, a lot of people read him, but we don't know why, right. you know, that, that type of thing. That's very true. And it's so interesting to watch that. I mean, even if you like take Joe Rogan, for example. Oh yeah. The guy is a behemoth, it's yeah. a juggernaut. You know, it's like, <laughs> if you're, you know, a young male between 18 and, you know, I don't know, 36 or something like yeah. that. He he just might be the most important person in, you know, media figure totally. in your life. And and he's getting just millions and millions and millions of downloads and views on every single show that he does and he's doing, you know, four or five shows a week. Yeah. Widely almost completely ignored by mainstream media unless there's some controversy that forces them to grapple with him. Yeah. But but it's such an interesting phenomenon that there's two worlds that are existing that you know the the mainstream media just you know refuses to recognize this growing reality and and it's what's bizarre too is that it's i mean it, it makes sense i guess but i i forget what article it was but like the new york times mentioned him in an article recently and it, they like totally brushed him off they're like oh yeah this this fringe youtuber joe rogan 
that people, some people listen to or whatever. His audience is larger than like hits on network television. And yeah, I, I was telling my wife, I'm like, I if you gave me the option of like doing Joe Joe's show or doing like six having six profiles in the New York Times over the next month, yeah, I would do Joe's it's, show. It doesn't even compare. Yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, and I think that's why they have that. At, like they don't they don't get it. They're like. Like, we're the New York Times. Why don't people take us as seriously as this guy on YouTube? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, maybe you should try to understand. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds over the next couple of years because yeah. it's changing, but it's interesting that you would think it would be changing more quickly. Yeah. And and again, what's weird to me is I don't get this sense in Canada and Australia. When I go to Canada, I'm going to Australia tonight actually. And it's, I mean, I'm loaded all the morning TV shows. I'm doing all the biggest newspapers. Like they do glowing profiles and the interviews are good. Like it's not, it's not this- The two minute, two second thing. It's not this bullshit like soundbite thing where, you know, once it gets published, you don't even recognize half the stuff they quote you on. Um, It's it's like they grapple with the the philosophical content of of my work and they take it seriously. And so I don't, yeah, I don't know what it is. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, so 32, you're having this uh, existential crisis, (laughs) you know, pre, you know, pre uh, midlife crisis, uh, quarter life crisis or whatever <laughs> it is. And hindsight's twenty twenty. but looking through the rear view mirror, like your second book is baked into this experience. Totally. Like all you have to do is read your first book and go on this search for, you know, what are your values? I know. And the path forward <laughs> becomes crystal clear. Like yeah. did it, I mean, how long did it take for that to dawn on you that this needs to be the next book that you're gonna write? It, it, was, it was an awkward experience because there were a lot of, so I so I signed on to do to do more books with Harper and and I was just under this immense uh, both pressure from them but also pressure from myself of just like God how do I live up to this thing how do I follow this up um, all the stuff you said about comparisons of like you know oh my God did I peak at thirty two like that sucks um, and and so I had a lot of kind of therapeutic conversations with friends and and family and they just look at me and they're like dude. 
stop giving a fuck. <laughs> you know, like take your own medicine, take, bro. take your own advice. And I'm yeah. like, Oh God, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it speaks to how hard it is to actually implement the it wisdom. Is. You it's know, really there's, hard. there's the intellect. And you talk about this in the new book, the difference between the thinking and the feeling brain, like sure. intellectually, yeah, I can, I can grok that. Like yeah. I, I know what you're talking about, but then actually practicing it moment to moment to moment as yeah. you're, experiencing feelings that you've never encountered before, that's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's in, it's intense because it is, you know, the, the I guess the experiences I was going through at that, that time were so extreme um, and so vastly different than anything I'd ever in, encountered before. Um, but it, it's funny, eventually like what I came back to, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I had to remember like why I write. And I've always written, writing has always been my own little kind of public form of therapy. And um, everything I write, it's because it's stuff that I'm dealing with myself. Mm -hmm. And by writing about it, it helps me kind of process and understand my own values and worldview. Um, and so it's, I had a few book ideas that I started on and I'm like, I'm like, oh, this will be a huge hit. Or the publisher would be like, hey, maybe you should do that. I'm like, all right, I'll try to do that. And it just wasn't going anywhere. And, and I was becoming more aware of all this stuff that we're talking about around the same time. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I need to go back to what I've always done, which mm -hmm. is just take whatever I'm freaking out about it, at this moment and write it out. Was there an impediment to that because you felt like, this is such a privileged problem that people <laughs> aren't gonna be able to relate to it? Or is it just getting behind, like if you go past that and just get to the truth of it, which is the struggle for identity, you know, mm -hmm. essentially yeah. that we can all relate to. Well, I, I, so there's, everything we've been talking about is, is kind of one thread. There's a second thread that went into this book, which is um, around the same time, a lot of people, a lot of academics were publishing books um, about like Steven Pinker's books and Jonathan right. Haidt's books. They're, they're publishing all these books about how basically from every material metric, like the world is great right now. Like it's, we're safer and healthier and there's less conflict and violence and crime than ever in world history. Um, meanwhile, you see all these mental health issues escalating. Right. Um, and so, I was doing, I was just out of curiosity, I was reading a lot of those books and digging into a lot of that research. And at, at some point I kind of put two and two together. I'm like, there's something about this, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I think it's actually in Subtle Art, is, is that it's like, if you, um, if you remove, uh, if you remove all, all problems from your life that your mind will immediately set out to find new ones. Um, I think it was uh, Jose Marti or somebody said that, um, but it's, I always liked that quote and I was like, that always kind of made sense. But I, you know, all these things kind of came together and I'm like, wow, there's something about too much comfort or satisfaction um, that seems to make us anxious and yeah. a little bit like our perceptions of reality get skewed a little bit. Um, and then you take from that, like everything, you know, our basically our whole world is built around, our whole economy is built around providing comfort and convenience and satisfaction mm -hmm. to people. And so um, I got on this kind of interesting kick of like, you know, maybe the issue is uh, 
success. Maybe the issue is hope. Like maybe it's too many of our dreams have come true. I mean, and, and that's not to downplay like the legit issues that are going on today. It's just to say that, um, you know, when you're sitting in a nice air conditioned room with like 500 Netflix shows and you can have 20 different cuisines delivered to you from like a press of a button, um, suddenly all these questions about identity and purpose and, you know, what is, what is the meaning of my life and what, what value am I adding to the world? Like these all, they, they actually become very difficult questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> much harder than say, if you're, um, you know, poor or, or uh, you know, living out on a farm somewhere. Right, you're, you're in, in that case, your mind is occupied by meeting your needs. It's simple, you know, yeah. They, they become just, very pressing, but when those needs are met and you have clean water and a roof over your head and you have the, all the modern conveniences yeah. that we've you know, acclimated ourselves to, then what? Yeah, and, and I think, I think we're, we're also kind of reaching a saturation point. I think as, as a culture, I know when I was growing up, there, there was kind of this unspoken cultural assumption of like, we need to fill our whole day with stimulation, whether it's entertainment or learning something or like creating value. It's like every minute you're awake, there should be like some sort of stimulation going on. And I think in the last five or 10 years, we hit this point of like, stimulation saturation. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, we are constantly stimulated. Uh, we are overflowing with stimulation and, and it's actually, uh, it complicates our, it complicates our understanding of ourselves. Not, it doesn't clar clarify it at all. Yeah, our whole, you were talking about what our economy is built on. I mean, our economy is fundamentally premised on marketing and advertising mm -hmm. and and you talk about this in the book, this shift in, in advertising from basically explaining why a product, you know, what the, what the benefits of owning a product are to appealing to our emotional bodies and trying yeah. to trigger our fears and our insecurities. And when your needs are met, um, now we're, you know, fast forward to an era where we're bombarded with messages that, that are telling us our lives will be better if we have this, or you're not enough because you don't have that. Yeah. And it creates this future tripping mindset that, um, that, a lot, that prevents us from being present in the moment, that consistently forces us to you know, spin out over um, what our future might be or how we compare to our fellow man. Uh, and ultimately is this colossal distraction yeah. from what is truly important in life. Yeah. And it's, I think, I originally had a whole chapter on this. I kind of regret, I mean, so this is one of the things that like kind of rushing the book out, I think maybe harmed it a little bit, but um, there's a section, I think I, I have maybe like three or four pages about it towards the end of the book about loneliness, kind of the rise in loneliness and the loss of community. Um, I originally had a whole chapter, but the chapter kind of sucked and instead of having time to like hash it out and fix it, uh, I just took like the three or four pages that were good and crammed mm -hmm. it into the chapter before. And, um, but it, it's funny cause the, the, you know, I've been doing this, this speaking tour around the US and Canada the last couple of months and I'm meeting a lot of people in person and answering their questions. And, and the more time I'm like talking about all these issues, the more convinced I am that the, the loneliness issue is maybe the paramount one. Because I think what what we don't realize is that 
the more options and stimulation that we have in front of us, the less willing we are to uh, compromise what we want to like be with somebody else, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, if I want to watch Netflix and you want to like go to a concert, it's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to watch Netflix, uh-huh. you know, like, you know, where's, or if you you want to watch two different shows, you can sit in the same room and, and both and watch. Them. Watch them. <laughs> <laughs> or it's yeah, like if I want to like, check my email and yeah. you want to watch a show, you know. So it's even like, when you're with other people, when your face is planted into a screen, you're still alone. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I mentioned, you know, there's a there's a famous book that came out about 15 years ago called Bowling Alone, and and um, I talk about it a little bit in the new book, but it's. What he taught, basically the, it's called bowling alone because more people than ever before are bowling, Mm -hmm. but there are fewer bowling leagues than there have ever been. And he kind of goes, he goes all the way across society and, you know, everything from like PTA groups to church groups to political activism. Like it's just fewer people are coming together into, into groups and communities. Everybody's trying to do everything themselves. Um, And he, he blames entertainment. He says that it's, you know, the more options there are to be entertained, the more accustomed we become to just, I guess, feeling entitled to do what we want yeah. and not be impeded upon by other people. Um, but that causes relationships to break down. And so I think we've got a bunch of lonely people who aren't getting that face-to-face exposure to to the world, who aren't don't feel like they're a part of a community or have significant relationships in their lives, yet, they're constantly being engaged through social media and just the conventional media about like political issues, group issues, social Mm -hmm. identity issues. Um, And it's so easy for them to respond, you know? So it's, I think the combination of those two things, you see this outrage culture that's emerged um, where everybody's just pissed off and feels victimized all the time. Yeah. And the more you engage with that, the more calcified you become in your belief systems, the more resistant you are to being open to other ideas and the more difficult it it becomes to actually change or be open-minded about another way to think and live. Yeah, totally. So how does this dovetail? You have this this kind of counterintuitive, um, arguably paradoxical ideas around hope. Yeah. So how does all of this like <laughs> dovetail into this, into the into you know into into this thesis that you've come up with about how we think about and practice hope? So I make the argument that hope is necessary. Like we all need some form of hope. We all need to believe that the future can be better than mm-hmm. it is today. That that's what gives us a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. Um, my argument is that uh, our visions of hope can potentially be destructive um, because every everything that you hope for, you it's it's by definition you hope for it on faith. Like you 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 never know, you know. It's like I had I believed on faith that having a best selling book would make my life better. I didn't actually know that. Uh-huh. It's just something I chose to believe and it, and it motivated me for many years. Um, so we, we all develop these kind of faith-based belief systems around what we hope for in the future. Um, it could be religious, it could be non-religious. And my argument is that because these belief systems that we tie so much of our mean, personal meaning into, um, are 
at the end of the day, kind of arbitrary. Like we we need to defend them against people. We need to we protect our hope. And if people try to contradict what we hope for, you know, they're the enemy, and we attack uh-huh. them. And um, and so there's this this kind of like shadow to hope that never gets discussed. Um, this destructive potential of hope. And so essentially, I mean, the, the book is really just a be very very careful what you hope for, and b I make the argument that as our society and technology and everything accelerates our ability to fulfill our hopes, uh, that might not necessarily be a good thing because it's the having hope that sustains us. When we achieve what we hope for, we mm. we actually lose our hope, mm-hmm. which is what happened to me. Right. Um, and so in a very paradoxical way, it's uh, giving people... And when I say giving people what they want, what I mean is kind of like, a, I mean that on more of a superficial level, like fulfilling people's desires um, can actually kind of erode away at our, our at our ability to feel as though we have meaningful lives. Mm-hmm. It depends in some respect though, like how good your life is, yes. right? Like if you're, like you use the example of this guy, Will Told, Pilecki, the the Polish yeah. dude who's like in you know basically submits himself to Auschwitz. I mean, his life is just you know an endless stream of like horrors, <laughs> you know, like and uh, and you know hope is what sustains this guy. But to use your example, when we're all in air conditioned homes and yeah. our needs are met and we can Postmates everything and we're on net we're watching Netflix, um, hope then gets kind of tweaked into you know I would almost characterize it as it gets it gets run through this you know machine that turns it into fear like fear of losing what we have yeah and and an insecurity about how we measure up to other people totally yeah it's one of one of the paradoxical things i talk about is that the worse things are the easier it is to hope for something and the know? more value that hope ha- holds exactly right? you know so it's like if war breaks out and you know, God forbid, this like West Coast is being bombed. It's like you and I suddenly know exactly what we're waking up in the morning for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like when everything's just fucking great, <laughs> and we're just chilling, <laughs> drinking some tea, like looking at the mountains. You know, it's like, what do I hope for? You know, there's whole seminars, and there's a billion dollar industry uh-huh. on basically like helping people figure out what the hell they should hope for, and like that is a very privileged position. That's actually, that's a criticism that the book has received. They're like, oh, this is just hashtag first world problem. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Like <laughs> the point is that, you know, first world creates a lot of, you know, people get upset over a lot of like trifling problems. Yeah. And like that itself is a problem. Yeah. You know, how do we become aware of that in ourselves and manage that in ourselves and not like do something stupid? Mm-hmm. The easy sell from a marketing perspective is to convince people that their lives are gonna be better if they have a bunch of money and they ha- they can sit on the couch and go on these vacations and yeah. you know make all of these choices. And you know, that triggers something instinctually in all of us that looks very good. Yeah. Um, it's a much harder sell to tell people, uh, listen, you know, forget about all the life hacks, you know, yeah. forget about the air conditioning. You'll actually be a much happier person if you're forced to confront yourself to grapple with your you know 
character defects, if yeah. you're compelled to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and, you know, expand the, the, the outer edges of your comfort zone and to like fucking do hard shit. Yes, absolutely. People don't want to hear that, even though time and time again, you know, especially in the podcast world, like people yeah. are constantly talking about the value of this and how this is really the path to finding purpose and meaning and ultimately fulfillment in your life. Yeah. Yeah, the, the argument I make towards the end of the book is that, you know, the same way our body needs a certain amount of stress and hardship. Resistance. To grow, be, get stronger, get more resilient. Um, I think our minds need the same thing. We need mental challenges. You know, it's like if you feel like, um, you know, if you feel like, like I told my wife, I'm like, you know, it, it's, at some point in the next year, I want to go like stay in a roach infested hostel somewhere like I like I did 10 years ago, you know, just so that I don't- You're such an elitist. I don't lose myself, you know, cause it's, I'm, I'm not, now that I have money, I'm enjoying luxury, but it, it's, it's, it's a trap, you know, like it's, it's because your, your mind adjusts and suddenly you, you get to this point where you're like, well, this is bullshit. These aren't feather pillows. Like, you know, uh -huh. you know, you call the front desk, you're like, I, demand this type of pillow and you know it's like you don't want to be that guy um so it i think there's you know the same way we need to challenge ourselves physically i think we need to challenge ourselves intellectually i think we need to challenge ourselves emotionally um and i guess you could argue even challenge ourselves spiritually uh, well with success the difference becomes that you have to invite those challenges into your life yes. in, in a proactive way versus just, you know, swatting them away like flies when you're, you know, in the shit and just trying to figure your life out. Totally. Well, and, and this is why I actually think the fitness analogy is perfect for this. Cause it's like if you're if you're working on a ranch somewhere and somebody's like, hey man, what's your workout routine? Like they're gonna look at well, you also, like you're crazy. Yeah, you know, and if you're working on a ranch, you're probably not the guy who's gonna go sign up for the Spartan race. Yeah. Because you don't need that in your life. That's exactly. not missing from your daily experience. Exactly. And so it's, it's, you know, the people who sign up for the Spartan race are a bunch of like- There are people who are working in cubicles who are too sedentary exactly. and not, and aren't stressing their physical- And they're know, educated and comfortable and yeah. And, and it's, it's, so they have to go seek that, that out. And I think we, we're we gonna have to develop some sort of regimen for ourselves of doing the same thing intellectually and emotionally. Yeah, well, no one gets out of life alive, no. right? You know, we're all, <laughs> we're all gonna die here. Um, and, you know, I believe that the universe puts in front of you what it is that you need to see and work on the most. So with your success, it was, you know, an argument could be made that this mirror came up in front of you you were uh, forced to grapple with this existential crisis and probably some character defects that mm -hmm. you really had to look at that maybe if you're just in survival mode and you're a blogger, like that's not pertinent. Yeah. But when these other problems get resolved, you get new problems. And this is something you talk about all the time. It's like, life is not about getting rid of your problems. Yeah. It's like trying to get better problems. Exactly, exactly. And, it, and it, again, I had to eat my own, what's that saying that you have to eat your own Chow or eat your own shit. Eat your own. Well, you could say shit. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. but it, but it, yeah, I mean, it's you're absolutely right. And and it's one. I think one of the things that was very uncomfortable about the success of the first book is that I, it did show me that my values weren't so aligned as well as I thought they were. Mm -hmm. That I I probably did put too much emphasis on say commercial success or popularity. Um, 
and that 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 was what ended up you know once I got it that's kind of what messed mm-hmm. me up you couldn't be told that that wasn't gonna fill that hole you had to experience that for yourself in order to really connect with it yeah and and I I think honestly in my mind if you had told me back then uh that I cared too much about I'd be like no I don't really care no right I'm fine you know but it's then you experience you're it and you're like refreshing oh. your mentions on Twitter yeah <laughs> and then you're yeah. like oh I'm full of shit uh-huh. <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't be like this right now <laughs> so let's talk about the the fallacy of the pursuit of happiness sure elaborate <laughs> you your turn to talk <laughs> um you know I I the argument I've always made is that Happiness is a byproduct of working on the right things, um, choosing the good struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with happiness is that it's kind of like a mirage. Um, the more you run towards it, the further away it gets from you. And it's the fact that you're running towards it uh, that makes that pushes it further mm-hmm. away from you. It's, it's kind of like, like trying I, to meditate. Yeah, right. (laughs) The more you try, the further away you are from actually doing the thing. Exactly. And, um, and so it's just, I think, I think there's also, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I mean, it's, if you look at, you know, when Aristotle defined two forms of happiness, there's kind of like a pleasurable hedonistic happiness. And then there's a more like meaningful fulfillment happiness. And so, uh, the pleasurable happiness is like, sweet, I've got like a nice fruity drink and it's a beautiful day and I wanna go surfing or whatever. And you you basically, it's just being able to indulge on your desires. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the more, the fulfillment, the more meaningful happiness is about, uh, it's about purpose. It's about, you know, okay, today sucks, not feeling good, but I'm on the path I wanna be on. And I think our culture has lost that sense of, like if you look at what happiness meant hundreds of years ago, it usually meant that fulfillment thing. You know, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the right to pursue happiness, Mm -hmm. like it's basically the right to pursue your life purpose. Um, What that's gotten, I think through consumer culture and marketing and advertising, what that has been distorted into is you have a right to feel good. Yeah, You have a right to, have your desires indulged. And um, and we don't, we don't. And it, it's funny, I forget who, well, even if I remembered, I wouldn't call him out, but I did, an, I did a podcast interview a couple months ago and uh, whoever it was was like, was like, yeah, but don't we all deserve to be happy? And I'm like, fuck you, why do you deserve to be happy? <laughs> you know, like, it's, who says you deserve to be happy? Like, it doesn't, you don't deserve anything, you know? Like, if you want to feel something, uh, if you want to, have some experience, like you gotta go out and get it. You, mm-hmm. you gotta like do, you You gotta like find some sort of meaningful struggle that that earns it for you. Mm-hmm. You can't just sit in a room and be like, I deserve to be happy, yeah. Ooh-hoo, you know? So anyway, that's my right. rant. I got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> that um, was kind of all over the place, but. No, I like it. Uh, how does that mesh with with uh, the fact that Will Smith has a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness? You know, Have you talked about that with him? You know what's funny though? <laughs> You know, it's so funny. So uh-huh. a few people brought that up. And so we're, you know, working on this, pro- I went back yeah. and watched all of his movies. Um, and it's funny, like that, 
when that movie came out, I thought it was just kind of a conventional movie about like a success story, like a homeless guy down on his luck who like got this great job and turned things around. What's fascinating, if you go back and like really pay attention to it. The movie holds up. It really holds, I, I think it's his best movie. He thinks it's his best movie. Um, it It's, there's some dark stuff that's happening on the periphery of that movie. Like the the homeless shelters, the like churches turning people away. Um, like it's it's actually a very deep commentary on the American dream. And he told me a really interesting story. It's gonna be in the book. He said that um when they were trying to figure out who who did who they wanted to direct the movie, um, Will I forget the name of the he's an Italian guy, but Will had seen this Italian some movie by this Italian guy, mm-hmm. really liked it. Um, and was like, hey, let's talk to this Italian guy. And so the Italian guy comes out, comes to California, like doesn't even speak English and is is like stumbling his way through like some awful pitch. And uh, Will's team is just like, they're shaking their, they're like, uh-huh. yeah, this, there's no way. Um, and Will's like kind of skeptical. And he said that the the director could tell it wasn't going well. And finally he said, he, he said like, look, Will, can I say one thing? He said, whatever you do, he's like, I can kind of tell I'm not going to get the job, Mm -hmm. but like, whatever you do, don't let an American direct this movie. And Will was like, why is that? And he said, because you can't, Americans can't see what the American dream actually is. Like the, you need a foreigner. It's a de Tocqueville kind of take, right? And so when you watch it, it is, is actually a very nuanced commentary on what 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 rags to riches actually is mm-hmm. and what it is what what kind of society like we've kind of constructed yeah. that creates narratives like like that and for every person like chris gardner there's like 200 sitting sitting in the hopeless shelter yeah. you know probably today so it's like it's a that's a bit of a tangent, but it's a really like everybody should go back and watch that. Yeah, movie. I'm gonna go back and watch it. So he got the gig though. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like as soon as he said that, <laughs> Will's like, right. all right, you got it. <laughs> all right. So in terms of of like turning our attention to decision making, like how can we, you know, make better decisions about, you know, how we're moving forward and mm-hmm. how we're evaluating our values, et cetera. You go into this deep dive on the difference between the thinking mind and the you know the, the thinking brain and the feeling brain mm-hmm. and the illusion that we think we're all making logical choices when yeah. in fact we're just you know we're just at the behest of you know a chaotic <laughs> emotional you know light storm going on between yeah. our ears. Yeah, it's there's an interesting history of kind of understanding this aspect of ourselves. So to to just summarize it really quickly i used i have an extent an extended metaphor in the book of you have a thinking brain and a feeling brain and if your consciousness is a car most people assume that it's our thinking brain that's driving and our feeling brain is kind of like this loud obnoxious kid in the passenger seat uh-huh. that you're like shut up shut up it's like always yelling at you you know wants to go get candy and wants to do whatever um but the truth is, if you if you dive into the research, like the truth is that, is that actually the feeling brain's driving, and the thinking brain is the navigator. The thinking brain's the one Writes drawing the, map. the maps. Um, and so there's two ways that can go. The first way is that, uh, and, and I compare the feeling brain to like 
like a, a, a like an abusive bullheaded boyfriend or husband who like refuses to ask for directions, mm-hmm. refuses to like change their, you know, whatever. So it's like there's two ways this can go. Your thinking brain can either draw the maps that the feeling brain wants to see um, to justify where the feeling brain wants to go. Or you can draw the maps in such a way to kind of negotiate with the feeling brain of like, no, this is the best way to go. Um, The first way is kind of our default state. You know, we all, if we're tired, if we're not, we have like very low self-awareness, if we're not very educated, um, we tend to just draw the map that our feeling brain wants to see. It takes a lot of conscious effort, takes some willpower, takes a little bit, you know, developing uh, a skill of self-awareness to be able to consistently draw mm-hmm. the maps um, that kind of negotiate with our feeling brain um, to get it to drive in the right direction. So. Because of this, I, I make the argument that all these questions about you know habits and self-discipline and willpower and procrastination, all these things, all these things that you know, there's a million productivity blogs that have all these systems and all this right. shit. I'm like, these are emotional problems. Like if you, yes, if you can't get yourself to work out consistently, that is not. It's not your plan. It's not you know that you don't have the right workout it's not that you don't have like the right trainer it's it's an emotional problem there's some Mm -hmm. you don't go because it doesn't feel good and so the real question is is how do you how do you convince yourself how do you find a way to make working out feel good how do you find a way to to make eating healthy feel good Um, how do you find a way to make um being honest feel good like these these are all fundamentally emotionally based questions Mm -hmm. And so we have to find emotional answers, uh, which sucks because emotional answers are hard and they're individual. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no book out there that's going to be able to like, you know, here's how to. And there's there's solve certain people forever. that like in that context of self will and discipline and people that struggle to like wake up at a certain time or go to the gym. Like certain people are more you know, short-term reward focused and mm-hmm. other people value, you know, the 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 long-term payoff of like a certain kind of practice. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's differences in how people are wired fundamentally, but I think it is true. Like if you look at Jocko Willink, who's like posting a photo every day of him waking <laughs> up at 4.30 yeah, right. and, and a lot of people, like it's inspiring, yeah. but it's also shame provoking. And a lot of people that just can't get there or maybe do it once or twice and then fall off the bandwagon and totally. say, it'll never be like Jocko. Um, but that's doing something for Jocko that aligns with his core values about yes. the kind of person that he wants to be. And that may, that may not be you. Like I could, I'm a very disciplined person. Yeah. If I wanted to wake up at 4.30 every day, I could. I did it all through high school. But I value my, you know, I want yeah. eight hours of sleep and I'm actually more productive and I'm a better human being when I yeah. get that. So that's a value that exceeds the value of getting up and taking a picture of my watch every morning to share on social sure. media. Um, and that works for me. But I think the challenge for people is to find find a, you know, first of all, yes, you have to grapple with your emotional demons and figure yeah. out what makes you tick and what what you need to redress in order for you to basically align your thinking brain, your thinking mind and your feeling brain in a way that they're, you know, sort of charging, you know, down the superhighway in unison with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I actually, I, I use Jocko as an example in the book. Um, 
because the 430 thing's perfect. I think he he said in his book that the reason he started doing it, he did it in Iraq, because it made him feel like he was getting an advantage over his mm-hmm. enemy. Um, it's serving something that that works for him and yeah. that makes him feel good. Exactly, and that narrative, he brought that narrative home and it still works for him. But I think you, you raise a really good point, which is, and I, I don't think this gets discussed enough, I guess in the, the personal development industry, is, is that it's, there's, it's okay. Like if you try Jocko's thing, I mean, I, I, I would hate it. I already know. Uh-huh. Like I, I, I hate getting up early. Um, and I used to beat myself up about that. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, Beethoven got up at 5 a.m. I should be up at five, you know? And, and it's like, I would try that. And I'm like, wow, I just feel awful. Like, I don't like this. Um, and eventually you have to arrive at a point where it's like, okay, that's okay. You know, you don't need to be like, mm-hmm. Jocko or Tony Robbins or Bill Clinton or like whoever, whoever You don't need to feel bad about yourself because you're not either. We're we're all wired very individually. Um, But the caveat, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. The caveat I would say is Jocko's core principle of discipline equals freedom still reigns true. Absolutely. You've got to find a different discipline that gives you that sense of freedom. It may not be waking up at 4.30 in the morning, but I I, I truly, I believe in that edict. And I think you do too. I mean, you talk about it in this book. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's, um, ultimately there's a central principle of health and growth. I think that needs to drive everything. You know, some people are early morning people. Some people are not early morning people. Um, you know, our circadian rhythms are different and our brains kind of operate at different hours differently. And I think it's just, the ultimate principle should be just understanding what works for you. What optimizes your time on this planet? Um, and what what habits and disciplines, as you said, you know, can you implement that, that, that optimize you essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be the question, not like, oh shit. Well, I didn't. I guess I, I'm just bad at this, you know, right? Because I can't get up early. So, if you're somebody whose feeling brain is going haywire all the time, and you struggle with discipline and mm-hmm. trying to adopt practices that you know your thinking brain, you know, wants you to adopt in order to be a more fulfilled yeah. person on a on a healthier trajectory for yourself, like what is the path towards, you know, grappling with those emotional barriers or whatever it is inside of you that's preventing you from making those changes? What well, the way I put it is that the thinking brain and the feeling brain need to learn to speak to each other. And the problem is, is that they speak different languages. And so um, people who are, tend to be more thinking brain, you know, caught up in their their thinking brain all the time, they're very bad at listening to their emotions. Um, and so one aspect of that conversation is you need to train yourself to become more aware of your emotions. Like, what are you, like, when you, when you feel that resistance about exercising or when you feel that like deep urge to like eat a chocolate cake or whatever it is, you know, ask yourself like, what are you feeling at that moment? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it um, desperation? You know, like really try to pay attention to your body um, so that your thinking brain can start deciphering what your feeling brain is telling it. Um, And then it's gotta go the other way around too, is that you have to, 
if the thinking brain kind of draws up a potential new narrative or reality, um, your feeling brain will try it on for size. Um, you know, so you you can enter into kind of this funny little negotiation with yourself of like, okay, going to the gym feels really intimidating right now. Um, you know, what what if I just go outside and walk for 30 minutes instead? Like that's still exercise. That's still better than nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and you listen to your feeling brain, you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't feel so bad. So you go outside and you walk for 30 minutes. And then at least you get to, you know, your feeling brain gets that feeling of satisfaction, of accomplishment. Um, And then next time, you know, you do that a few times and then suddenly the gym doesn't feel so intimidating. Um, You know, and this plays out for all sorts of different things. I mean, essentially that conversation of thinking brain and feeling brain, trying on new narratives, seeing how it feels, that is what therapy is. So in other words, to kind of break this down. Your thinking brain says to your feeling brain, all right, dude, like I'm tired of being fat. Like it's time to get, <laughs> get in gear here. We're gonna go to the gym every day. And the feeling brain has a freak out. Yeah. So they're not communicating effectively. That negotiation, you know, quickly leads yeah. to an impasse. So, all right, let's step it down. All yeah. right, how can I, how can I, you know, get the feeling brain to do something that is uncomfortable for the feeling brain, but not overwhelming, that yes. is blowing out all the circuits. So you can like stair step into it. The other thing that happens a lot too is that, so people, and this happens on January 1st every year, people are like, all right, this is it. This is the year <laughs> I'm gonna do it, yeah. you know? And then they wake up uh-huh. that first day and they are pumped. They're so excited. And then by day four, you know, they're like, oh God, this again? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not so sure about this. You know, so they lose that enthusiasm. And 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 that the reason they they stop going is because they lose that enthusiasm. So the go, the the goal of the thinking brain is to find ways to keep that enthusiasm going. Um, you know, the reason accountability works, the reason like going with a friend works, hiring a trainer, it's because the social pressure basically pushes your feeling brain into enjoying it. You know, it's like, maybe I don't enjoy going by, my, by myself, but my best friend's gonna come with me and that's gonna be fun. So uh-huh. yeah, let's do it together. Um, it's so annoying though, that we can't, like we know we're gonna be happier once we're, we've lost that 30 pounds yeah. or we cross the finish line at that marathon. And yet we can't, it, it, it's, it's really, inadequate to try to leverage that in order to, to get us to do the thing we need to do today yeah. to work us ourselves towards that. It's too abstract. Yeah. You know, you, your thinking or your feeling brain doesn't understand past or future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why trauma still fucks with us. You know, it's like something happened 20 years ago. My feeling brain doesn't understand that that was 20 years ago. My feeling brain still hurts now. Um, and it's the same thing with the future. You know, you can list 80 different reasons why adopting a certain habit is gonna benefit you. You know, at the end, you know, it's, you, uh-huh. you're gonna live longer, you're gonna have more money, like whatever. Feeling brain doesn't understand that. Feeling brain understands now. Right. Um, Which is gonna lead us into this uh, terrain of talking about the present moment. But before we do that, sure. how does this feeling brain, thinking brain, you know, battle this ongoing thing? dovetail into these three laws of emotion. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh man. Um, I kind of went crazy with this, with the, with the emotion thing. You know, I, I've always wanted to write a book. I, I've always wanted to like really just lay out kind of 
the this the chain links between our experiences how experiences lead to emotions how emotions lead to our values and then how our values lead to our identities or our sense of like who we are um, and so chap- the the first few chapters of the book are my attempt to do that mm-hmm. so the laws of emotion are it's kind of a, it's a fun play on Newton's laws of motion um, you know first one is um, every every action has an equal and opposite emotional reaction uh, second one, I'm going to mess these up. <laughs> second Worth one. is the sum of our emotions over time. Yep. Yeah. Third one is uh, your identity stays your identity until a new experience acts against it. Yeah. So, so. basically our, our values are ultimately derived from our emotional experiences. Um, something super simple. It's like if growing up, uh, your dad always took you to the baseball game your light and you in it was like the highlight of your childhood you're likely going to value baseball mm-hmm. throughout most of your life um that's true of all of our experiences everything that we find important in our lives it has made us feel good at some point in the past um and generally the 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 extent that we value it is proportional to how good it made made us feel um or or I think a probably more accurate way of putting this is, is the extent that it met our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like with the, the visions of hope, it's like once we find something in our life that we find valuable, we think is important, we hold on to that, we protect it. You know, it's like, I am a baseball fan. I go to games. I am like, my dad and I did this, blah, blah, blah. This is who I am. Right. Like, this is the this is the story that you're telling yourself and other people about. Yeah, who exactly. You are. It's the story you're telling yourself and it's the story you're sharing with the world. And uh it's how you understand yourself. Now let's say that uh you know you find out that uh your favorite baseball team was uh you know crooked and run by the mafia and they were like not they were every all the games were rigged. And it just crushes you, like absolutely crushes you. So that experience, that contrary experience to what you value, you know, you love baseball and then you find out it's all a lie. Like th- th- your devastation is proportional to how much you valued it. Mm. Um, and so that that kind of identity crisis that occurs where it's like, well, I thought I loved this thing, but it, it screwed me over and now I don't know who I am anymore. Um, the pain of that fall is proportional to how high you held it up on right. the pedestal. Um, and so eventually you have to find something else that you value to replace that, to, 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 keep, to, to keep your identity, mm-hmm. um, some sort of cohesive identity going. And so it's, it's very much the same way that, you know, uh, physical objects move through the world in very predictable ways. I think emotionally, our understanding of ourselves moves through the world in a very predictable way. Um, and so it's useful to understand how that happens, but I also think it's very useful to understand that how arbitrary that is. Um, that, you know, my love for baseball, if I had been born in France, would have been a love for soccer. Um, or if I had been born with different genetics, it would have been. I would have a different cultural affinity or ethnic affinity. Uh Um, So all these things in our lives that we see as like, this is who I am. um, They are ultimately a product of our experiences and which are then a product, largely a product of the environment Mm -hmm. that 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting how we're selective about those experiences. There's something in in our unconscious mind that identifies certain things, probably because of their emotional valence, that then become the cornerstones in that story. Yeah. Where when you really deconstruct it, like it's an illusion because yeah. it's a continuum of billions of experiences that we've had. And for some reason, there are certain ones that pop up that that we then craft this whole sense of who we are around. Yeah. Um, and I think just looking at that and being honest with ourselves about that helps us deconstruct that. But I'm interested in this model, which I, you know, I agree with you completely, but how does this model hold up in our post uh, fact, fake news world where, <laughs> you know, when we're told our baseball team was just a bunch of crooks yeah. and there's all these newspaper articles about it, we, instead of allowing that to seep in and, and forcing us to find a new identity, we just refute it and dig in even deeper, yeah. right? And I think that this is, is what we're seeing. This is endemic to our culture right now across the board. Absolutely. And it's freezing us in this space that is moving us away, and you get into this in the later part of the book, uh, moving us away from all of the freedom that we, you know, asp- you know, aspire to have in our life, and that we espouse in our, you know, in 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 the way that we live. Yeah, I, I think it's a couple things. I think one thing is that right now our media, or or not not just media, but like the way information travels in our society is very much based on attention. Um, so it's, it's, it's the, the more, more f- most factual thing is not what travels the furthest. Uh-huh. In fact, studies are showing that it's actually the, the bigger the lie, the more it travels. Right. What's that uh, adage, like a lie goes around the world a yeah. you know, hundred thousand times before the truth can get out of the gate or whatever, yeah. and something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, so the, in terms of virality and everything, like the, the research is bearing that uh-huh. out. Um, so the problem is, is that everything is based on attention. Everything is based on, um, if I can, uh, get enough clicks then I can make a bunch of money and whatever. Um, the problem with that is that let's say, let's say that I, so keep, keep this ridiculous baseball analogy going. Uh, let's say that I'm like a intrepid reporter who spent uh-uh. six months of my life digging into this huge baseball scandal and it's gonna bring the sport right. to its knees. Are you gonna pick a team here? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah well, let's say the Yankees. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like I, I'm investigating the Yankees and I find just corruption at every level, you know, and um, the players are throwing the games and, you know, the refs are in on it and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and I publish this huge, like 40 page investigative right, piece. This is like a Ronan Farrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. New Yorker. Exactly. Expose. Exactly. And it doesn't matter how right I am because as soon as that gets published and it gets all the attention and all the clicks, it creates, it's such a big incentive for anybody to come out and contradict me because they're gonna siphon off like half of those clicks. Mm-hmm. So this is why like anything you see, at my talks, I, 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 I use nutrition as an example. It's like, if you, if you like Google, like how do I lose weight? You know, you'll go to one article and it's like, oh, you just cut out fat. And then it's like, no, 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 that's a lie. Yeah. Cut out carbs. And then it's like, no, 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 carbs are good. Yeah. No, no, you gotta cut out meat. And you know, and it's like uh-huh. everything is just trying to contradict each other because the easiest way to grab attention 
is to contradict whatever currently has attention. Um, and so when you play this out for years and years and years where it's like everything that is is grabbing attention gets immediately contradicted by something else that you enter into this this post-truth reality where it's like, well, just pick a side. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you, and and when it comes down to pick a side, it's the feeling brain just goes, well, it's like, well. It becomes all feeling brain. Yeah, it's like, I, I like baseball, yeah. so this. this or one, I love the Yankees. Yeah, I love the Yankees. And so this guy, Mark Manson's full of shit and it's all set up and the media is just trying to corrupt sports because mm-hmm. they want to like whatever, you know? And it's, um, because it, it all appears the same when everything is just contradiction. Right. It's when, it's like when you're watching a new show and there's 10 people, you know, in those little boxes and they're all shouting. And yeah. <laughs> the, the inference is that their opinions are all of equal value. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's that, that's, that's a really good example because that's been going on for, for decades now. You know, like they'll bring on like a climate scientist and they'll bring on some fringe right wing right. loon who thinks it's all a hoax and they'll put them side by side and let them debate each other. And it, and it's, um, and so if you're a viewer, you're, you're like, all right, I'll just pick a side, you know? Cause yeah. it's, it's in the structure of the media environment is, is that it's, it's in their favor to always keep things. It's like Vegas. You always want to keep things equal on both sides, you know? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's where, you, where the most money is. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is when you're talking about information and truth and, uh, you know, politics and things like that, um, it has a very corrosive effect on uh, our society. So let's telescope that out then from the micro example of the Yankees or the news yeah. program to, you know, governments and democracy and and how we how we live essentially, how, yeah. you know, like the structures that drive you know, how we live day to day. Yeah, so it, once once everything becomes contradiction, we start losing faith in all these social structures that we depend on. Yeah. And w- one of the things I, I talk about early on in the book is that, you know, and this is, this is something that Harari popularized, popularized mm-hmm. with Sapiens, but it's like all these social structures are based on faith. They are based on, like a democracy is a faith-based construct of right. like, we all just agree. Yeah, money, like, corporations, yeah. all of these are illusions that we've made a social contract exactly. to believe in. Exactly, and so when you start con- contradicting everything, those illusions start breaking down. And so you, you get situations like today where, um, you know, where it's like fundamental branches of government that we all depend on, you know, it's like, oh, now it's the deep state and they're trying to like, mm-hmm you know, subvert everything or, or, or on the left, you know, it's like every, now it's, now you've got fascists in power, you know? And so it's, it's, it's these constant kind of extreme messages of like, oh, we have to tear the whole thing down. And this, this kind of comes full circle back to my original point of like, things are great and everybody's freaking out because it's none of the problems that we have today. And Yes, we have a lot of problems, but none of our, the problems we have today are problems that we haven't had in the past, uh-huh. that we haven't dealt with in the past. Um, and yet the level of despair, anxiety, and depression has never been higher. Right, and, 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 and politically speaking, you have large groups on both the right and the left who are ready to just tear everything down. Mm-hmm. Say, you know what, let's start over. And mm-hmm. it, like that, that is the danger. Like that's the bigger right. danger. Like what's going on in the, like, Congress has been gridlocked before, you know, we've had 
you know, we've had all sorts of corruption and breakdowns in different parts of the government before. Like the system is designed to compensate and kind of hold itself together. The only thing that can bring it down is when a critical mass of people are like, no, it's all bullshit. Right, and that's being weaponized right now. Yeah. You know, there are vested interests who are very savvy and are swaying public opinion by using the levers of technology to tilt the scales. And it, that, that becomes something unprecedented yeah. in history and, and rather terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a strange time. It's yeah. a very strange time. Meanwhile, technology continues to advance. We're seeing innovation at a rate that we've never seen before. Yep. And this gets into a, you know, a related subject that you talk about in the book, which is how these innovations, um, which we're all welcoming into our lives and signing up for and excited about and can't wait for the new iteration of, and yet they're all fueling, they're really just fueling diversion, which yeah. is, Reducing our the freedoms that we think that you know we should we that we're enjoying and yeah. and should be increasing. Yeah, it's um. So this kind of ties into to Jocko's thing about freedom equals discipline or discipline equals freedom. It's one of the, I guess, more profound conclusions, and I, I say profound for me. I don't know if anybody else cares, but for me personally, one of the more profound conclusions I came to the last four or five years is this realization that like freedom isn't necessarily having more stuff or more options or being able to do more things. Um, what real freedom is, is the ability to, to choose my commitments, to choose the people I want to be with, to choose the information I want to engage with, um, to choose the work I want to spend my life pursuing. And it's, I make the argument in the book that this proliferation of options, that we're essentially we're mistaking options for freedom. And, and options are great. When you have no options, options are great. Mm -hmm. They increase freedom. But once you have options, if once the options get to the point, like way, way, way past the point that you're ever gonna be able to choose from them. You're just continually scrolling down Netflix and it just keeps going. Yeah, it's, it's the never, old. There's that joke on Saturday Night Live, like the goal is just to, by the time you're done scrolling, they've now added new shows. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, it just it becomes you know, a perpetual habit trail. It feels like yeah. we're, we're getting there. Uh, but absolutely, it, you know, it's the classic like 500 channels on TV, there's nothing yeah. on. And um, it's, it's, the the proliferation of options has psychological effects on us. It makes a, there's a thing called paradox of choice, which um, you know if you if you give people an option between two two types of cereal, mm -hmm. you know you pick one and you're you're like all right, I got the better cereal. You're satisfied with it. If you give people an, a choice between twenty types of cereal, um, on paper that sounds like a better deal, but actually what happens is is people first of all they like get really anxious and and obsessive and are worried that they're gonna pick the wrong one. And then once they pick it, they're less satisfied with whatever they picked um, because they're actually thinking more about the 19 that they gave that they up. Didn't pick. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately leads to, that's you know a, the root of FOMO, I guess, on yeah. some level. And it just makes people feel despairing, like they're always missing out yeah. and they can't make the right choice. It's disorienting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, let's get into this idea of 
finding the solution in the present moment. Okay. Yeah. So hope is about the future. Yep. These stories we tell ourselves about who we are are rooted in the past. Yes. These are things that are fueling, uh, you know, all of these conditions that we're seeing, the epidemic of loneliness and depression and anxiety and all of this. Um, it all goes back to the ancient wisdom. <laughs> Gotta be here in the now, man. Yeah. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, like, <laughs> did you invent this idea? Yeah, I came up with the uh, present moment. Um, thank you. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it really is incredible. You know, so I, I my, my background, you know, and people who read Subtle Art would probably figure this out, but like my background is like a Buddhist background. Um, I see you've got the the statue. I've got, and the all, I've got all the new age trappings here. Yeah. <laughs> distract you. Um, but I, I, I was, I got, I got the Amor Fate. Oh, well, too, yeah. Which we can talk about in a minute. Absolutely. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm going there actually. Um, so my background's a little bit, a little bit Buddhist. Um, I spent a lot of my college years and twenties, like engaging with it and practicing meditation and, really getting into it. And um, so it's funny, I've, I'm kind of, I got on this big Western philosophy kick after Subtle Art came out. I, and I had read some stuff in college, but some of it was interesting and some of it was completely indecipherable. But I guess at some point in the last 15 years, my brain has like developed the attention span and patience to actually like wade through mm -hmm. Kant and Nietzsche. Um, and so I, I was reading a lot of Western philosophy and I was like really finding it inspiring in a lot of ways. And it's crazy because it's it all just comes back to the same principles. And uh, you know, Nietzsche, I talk about Nietzsche in the book. Nietzsche was he's considered the first postmodernist, which is because he he basically showed up and he was like, look, any human system because it was conceived of by humans mm -hmm. is going to be inherently flawed and faulty and it's never going to last. Anything, anything you can conceive of, it's going to fail at some point. And so uh, ultimately the conclusion that he arrived upon is you just need to learn to love the failure. He called it amor fati, love your fate. Mm -hmm. Just understand that everything's, and, and what's amazing too is that he was, People in, in Europe weren't aware of the Buddhist stuff at this yeah. time. And so, you know, they're kind of arriving at this uh, independently in their own way. And then it's, it's, it's the same as saying, stop resisting what is yeah. and embrace the now. Absolutely. And be in surrender and, and acceptance. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then Kant, it was a similar thing, you know, Kant, uh, Kant actually tried to do what Nietzsche said was impossible, which is to find some sort of universal moral principle of like, okay, this is the one thing that we should all value above all else. Um, and he really struggled with it. And he, I think he only, he came up with, he called them categorical imperatives. And I think he, he only came up with three and they've been torn to shreds ever since um, by a lot of really smart people and two of them in particular. But the, there is a third one, which I thought, I think holds up the best out of the three, which is what he called this formula of humanity, which is essentially never treat an individual, a conscious individual as a means, always as an mm -hmm. end, um, which is kind of a fancy philosophical way of saying, uh, you know, 
the highest value, the thing we should value more than anything else is always the dignity of each human being. Mm -hmm. And if you subscribe to any sort of religion or ideology or uh, relationship or passion that ever uh, forces you to treat another individual as a means, does not respect their inherent dignity as a human being, um, then that is a moral failure. Yeah, you describe it as as stop living a transactional life. Yeah. Right? Um, to live a transactional life is to treat another individual or a situation as a means to an end, which immediately gets you into the future. Yeah. You're plotting and planning. Yes. You're, you know, you're trying to create a machination that's gonna get you to this other place at some unspecified future time, as yes. opposed to living in the moment, treating somebody as an end in and of itself, which is another way of saying, just be present with who you are. Yes. And who that person is. And be unconditional in your actions. Um, you know, treat everything. Did that one get torn down? Cause that one holds up pretty well. I, I have not seen any convincing mm. destruction of it. Um, and it's, it, what's amazing too, is that it, it, the same principle is really at the heart of pretty much every major religion. I think it's just, it's all the institutional stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like the teachings of Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha, like the, it's all like, you know, Buddha's like cause no suffering. Jesus is like, love your neighbor. You know, right. it's it's like, it's all the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just all these cultural uh -huh. institutions get built on top of it that then start treating people as means to ends. Um, but it, it's, it's, you know, that, that transactional thing is, that is where the destructive side of hope emerges because you get people who are like, well, violence is wrong, but I'm pretty sure this guy's a Nazi, so I'm gonna beat the fuck out of him, uh -huh. you know? And it's like, that's where evil starts. That's, at least that's what Kant said. That's mm -hmm. where evil starts. Cause you are, the basis of your actions is no longer the inherent human dignity of each individual. The ends don't justify the means. Yes. Then. If, if the means are other people, never. Right, so to extend that into a thought experiment, if you could go back in time and like murder Hitler when he was a baby, like how does that play out, right? That's where it gets sticky. <laughs> but uh, I understand your point, yeah. which is essentially, you know, listen, um, how other people are living their lives really is none of your business. It's not for you to take their inventory and be, be, be in judgment of them. Uh, let's cast that, you know, turn that mirror around and look at yourself. Sure. Let's focus on being the best person that you can be. And when you enter into every situation, if you can be present and if you can uh, try to identify the shared divinity between you and that other person and hold, you know, hold that person in their highest regard, um, and just be in allowing yeah. that that is actually a much better plan for life. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think as individuals, absolutely. I think part part of where it gets sticky is that the nature of politics is very transactional. Like, I think we've kind of yeah. built a transactional system uh, just because we understand how selfish and prejudiced humans are like, I think that's, that is really the genius of democracy is that people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison 
realized how shitty people are <laughs> and right. are like, okay. Well, that's why we're a, d- a democratic republic and not yes. a pure democracy. Absolutely. I think that's a, 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 you know, a, a stop on that a yeah. little bit. But it's, it's um, I think what I love about that Kant's principle, because, it, you know, I spend basically half, the first half of the book explaining like how all of our hopes and values are created. <laughs> and then at the very end, I, I, I have the Nietzsche chapter, which just tears everything <laughs> down. <laughs> uh, and so you're, you're actually left with like a little bit of a bleak situation. Yeah. And I get a lot of emails from people who are like, dude, I just finished the first part of your book. Like, this is a downer, man. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> I'm like, keep going. It's okay. Keep going. You know, and, and I think the beauty of, of Kant's principle is that it's, it's the only thing I've really found that doesn't, you don't need an ideology or a belief system or any sort of like structure, institutional structure to practice it. You don't need anything in your environment to be correct. You know, you don't need, it, it's, it's true for every individual. It's true no matter what situation you're in, you know, and it's always, it can always be practiced in the present moment, as mm-hmm. you said. Like it's no matter how much you fuck people over in the past, no matter how much you want to fuck people over in the future, in this moment, you can treat people unconditionally as an ends and not just a means. The irony in that is that when you do do that, all the things that you're kind of aspiring to manifest in your life are actually more likely to occur. Like yeah. if you, you know what I mean? Like if you go into every situation, in a transactional mindset, yep. like I'm gonna, you know, like a take, you know, oh, I'm going to this marketing conference. I'm gonna meet all these people, and they're all gonna help me, and this yep. is gonna make my career. And you're in there just, you know, trying to get stuff from people. All, nobody, nobody wants nobody, to meet you. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes that guy, you know. But if you just show up full of heart, yeah, and they remember, like, wow, I really like talking to that person. Yeah. Like, how, you know, how can I? I want that person in my life. Yeah. Like, you're you're more likely to create a social circle that's conducive to to the things that you're trying to do, which which, which and it's funny I just now put this together, but that's what ex, that explains the backwards law I talk about in subtle art. Mm-hmm. You know this this idea that um, the more you let go, the more you have. Yeah, um, that's been so true in my own life, and yeah. I've seen it operative in so many people. Oh, absolutely. And it's so counterintuitive. It really is. And it really, it, it requires you to live in faith. Like, yes. because you you have to just believe, <laughs> I, I mean, you have to let go of all of that conditioning and programming yeah. in order to inhabit that space. Yep. And and it's a constant, you have to constantly remind yourself too, because we'll all default back into those, you know, ways that we've always behaved. Yeah. All right, so let's marshal in the robots. <laughs> The, our only hope. Yeah, I know. So talk about like a, a, a counterintuitive um, way to kind of close this book down too. Like <laughs> there's a lot of talk about AI. Yeah. What a, you know, we're afraid of AI. Is AI a good thing? Um, we've got people like Elon Musk and some very smart people out there uh, waving a very cautionary tale about what this is going to usher in. We need to have these conversations about what we're doing and have stops and controls. You take a very different attack in yeah, this whole thing. I, I, I again find myself, I think, standing kind of alone here. You know, so there's there's two camps with AI. There's I I think you call them kind of the utopians, which think that AI is gonna create this amazing place where humans can just chill out at mm-hmm. the beach for forever. Uh, As we've just explored over the last couple hours, this is you're not gonna, not gonna happen. You're not gonna <laughs> transcend your you know your your uh your feeling brain no matter yeah. even if you're uploaded to the cloud. Yeah. Um, 
so you, you've got those people and then you've got, I, I think kind of the doomsayers like Musk um, who are concerned that we're going to, who I, I think very rightly recognize that as soon as we create something that is some sort of super intelligent entity that outstrips all of our intelligence, um, we're going to be out of control. And because um, it's going to be able to outsmart us, manipulate us, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, I... So I often describe my my work as pessimistic self help. Um, you know, one thing I I say a lot when I do interviews or go on TV is, you know, I say most self help is very idealistic about human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, they believe we can do anything. We can, if you believe it, you can go do it. If you you just need to think positive and all this stuff. I I don't like any of that shit. I've spent enough time with psych research to understand that humans are we're inherently flawed, selfish, somewhat shitty creatures. And uh, we don't treat ourselves well, we don't treat other people well. Um, So my work has always been, instead of like, hey, you can do anything you want, my work has always been, let's just try to be a little less shitty. Uh Um, let's, Let's be aware of how flawed we are and work on those flaws. So bringing that back to the AI thing, I'm a pessimist about human nature. And so, yes, I do think we're going to lose control to to AI, but no, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think they're going to wipe us out. Like why? That's like, that's like being like, well, you know, horses aren't productive anymore. So we're going to kill all the horse. Like why you, there's no reason to do that. You know? So humans are going to be fine. We're just going to be like the horses in the AI society. You know, it's like, oh, It'd be fun. Hey, won't it be fun to get to get rich to go do that thing? Right. You know? But what if we're not the horses, we're the ants? <laughs> that too. But I mean, what's wrong with that? Well, it just means that <laughs> that we're so we're so insignificant to the yeah. AI that uh, that our well being doesn't even factor into whatever decision is being made about the future of the planet. Yeah, and we could be eradicated without a second thought. But that's true. Maybe we should be, I don't know. But that's true already. I mean, like we could be eradicated at any moment, you know, asteroid yeah. hits or whatever. Um, I just, I don't see, I don't see the problem with it. I And I think, you know, given how, I think it's far more likely we're gonna blow ourselves up than AI is. Well, I think it's a, it's a timing thing, right? right? Like it's gonna take longer for AI to advance to the point where it, it becomes sophisticated enough to do that. Um, we're more likely to blow ourselves up in the short term. I yeah. think in the long term, I think it, we're more likely to fall prey to the whimsical or maybe not the algorithmical uh, desires sure. of uh, artificial intelligence that we have created. Yeah, but it, it's, and I mentioned that, so I finished the book with a kind of a cheeky list of hopes that I have. And one of them is, is that we don't blow ourselves up before mm-hmm. the AI can develop enough to like, you know, <laughs> take the gun away from the baby. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if, if to challenge you a little bit, the, your, your whole thesis here is that we've arrived at this place in culture where our needs are met. And this is creating this existential crisis and yeah. all these mental health disorders. Uh, but a, won't AI just exacerbate that? It's gonna fill all these other needs so that we literally become like the guys in the wheelchairs in, in, in Wall-E. Like Not we never have to do anything. Not necessarily, I mean, we take dogs for walks. 
You know, uh-huh. it's like why won't the why won't the AI take us for a walk? Like I talk, I've got this. Well, like, the AI could walk the dog. <laughs> but but what I'm saying or is we're like we're gonna all have robot dogs. What, what I, I have this kind of like fun sci-fi moment in the last chapter about this, where I say like, yeah, we'll all be we'll be in like some virtual reality cloud where the AI has constructed some game that we're all engaged in that keeps us occupied and that we're uh-huh. all we all enjoy the ultimate distraction. Yeah. And then we become batteries like in the matrix. Sure, why not? <laughs> You're like, sign me up. Yeah, like dude, what's wrong with the matrix, man? <laughs> All right. Well, when that happens and then you have your next existential crisis, then you will have the material for the follow-up book about why this was all a really bad idea. Uh, well, <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a good that's place a good place to, to end. land it. Yeah. Um uh, James Altucher called this book the uh, Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning for for the Next Generation, and uh, I, I see I see why he said that. I think there's a lot there's a lot to that. It's a bold statement. It's really bold. But you it, have sold a lot of books. So bold it yeah. makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we'll know if AI if the robots don't kill us in a hundred years, then we can revisit this and see whether it holds up. But uh, um, I love the books. I love the work that you're doing. I think you're doing you know some some deep thinking about issues that are really important and affect all of us. So keep doing it, my friend. Thanks Thanks for coming by. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Peace. Good times for even more on Mark. Check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Let him know how this one landed for you by sharing your thoughts with him directly on Twitter at I am Mark Manson. And you can follow him on Instagram at plainly put Mark Manson. Also, don't forget to pick up a copy of his latest book, Everything is Effed, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. And of course, check out his wildly successful, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F, a counterintuitive approach. If you haven't done so already, most of you probably have already read that book. If you'd like to support our work here on the podcast, subscribe, rate, and comment on the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new people discover the show. Tell your friends about your favorite episode or maybe this episode. Share the show on social media. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, to Spotify, to Google Podcasts, and you can support us financially on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I appreciate my team that helps put on this show every week, Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, and show notes, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video and editing the show for YouTube, as well as the short clips we share across social media, Jessica Miranda for graphics, Allie Rogers for portraits, DK for advertiser relationships, and the music by Analemma. Appreciate the love, you guys. I will see you back here shortly with a great conversation and a very special performance from musicians Rodrigo and Gabriela. This one's a little bit different. We're trying a little bit of a new format. It's very exciting. I think you guys are gonna really dig it. They are amazing people. So let me take you out with a short clip. Until then, remember, there is still hope despite everything being effed. Peace. We knew we wanted just to play guitar. Yeah. And at some point after quitting the band, and uh, we was like, well, it doesn't matter if we play in a coffee or background music. And for us um, to, to, to stick to our guns, when we left Ixtap and went to Dublin, for that, uh, that was kind of our, the same uh, goal. So like, we're not going to do anything else but playing music. Mm. And we quickly realized that we had to play on the streets. Yeah. And uh, it was the best experience ever. 
Yeah, well, but I must say that adding to the redefinition of success, the experience with the band was quite intense because instead of focusing on music and stuff, we were focusing on how can we play here, how can we do this, and that drained us. That's why we we said no, we we don't like we we can't quit music, and as a matter of fact, now we want to embrace music, and that's how it, we said okay, whatever. We can go and play in anybody's wedding, anywhere else, background music, whatever. But for us, every single note has is going to have a meaning. 